Well, good morning, everybody. Special announcement. No, there's no special announcement this morning. This entire uh, confab of men have decided, no, nothing is happening. So um, I just wanted to uh, share with you a little bit about what's going on today because it's a fun time for me. It's a fun time, I think, for the gentleman on the stage. But uh, each and every week at 9.30 in the morning, we do a devotion series that is streamed live just like the main service. And each one of these men stands up and shares a brief teaching, something around uh, 15 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes long. And they teach based on a key doctrinal idea that Mark sets for the team here, okay? So, so the last doctrine that we went through was the doctrine of Jesus Christ, both the person and the work of Jesus. And we dabbled a little bit into the the idea of apologetics, like what it means to, uh, to convey that truth. So what I wanted to do at the end of each one of these devotional pieces, and you can look forward to this, um, so if, if each one of these guys gives a devotion and, and Mark sums it up at the end or even sets the stage as it will be uh, in the future too, um, we will come with a Sunday morning that looks just like this. So every six weeks or so, we're going to have a Sunday morning that looks just like this. And this group of men are going to um, be grilled by me. <laughs> this is the greatest plan that anyone has ever come up with. Okay, so Great for you, buddy. I just came up with the plan, so it makes it awesome. Anyway, so, so but what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the doctrine of Jesus. We're going to talk about the person and the work of Jesus. And I'm going to establish, uh, we're going to establish these truths through a series of questions that these guys answer. So what you're going to hear from me is a bit of a setup, a bit of a closing, and then the questions in between. Other than that, we're going to listen to these men speak, and we're going to see some amazing things. The purpose of this is threefold. Number one, to communicate what the church believes with regard to a particular doctrine, okay? I think that that's important for you in trusting the church that you uh, call your home. Number two, it is to familiarize the church with those who are leading you or those who are in training to lead you. Okay, so I think that that's an important truth. And then number three, it's to cultivate a sense of trust in those who lead you or are being trained to lead you. Uh, a sense of trust in their competence, a sense of trust in their training, in what they've learned or what they come to the table with, right? There's it's just amazing stuff that we're going to talk about today. Now, the, the question why doctrine is really important because uh, doctrine enables us to live the practical Christian life, okay? Uh, there is a sense in the church today that divorces this really bad word doctrine, <laughs> which is not a bad word, by the way, uh, this really bad word doctrine from let's just live the Christian life, let's just be practical followers of Jesus. Uh, but here's how it really works if you understand the scriptures, if you understand uh, what God has done. God teaches us things so that we might live. Amen? Yes. Doctrine is a teaching that informs you to live right. 
Doctrine is not a bad word. Can you say that with me? Doctrine is not a bad word. Neither is fundamentalism, neither is dogmatism. So suck it up. Anyway, so, okay, so back to it. I'm getting a little fired up now. But anyway, so do- uh, doctrine is a really, really important thing. Uh, how many of you ever went to school and, and you were like, I'm never going to use this in real life? You learned something, you're like, I'm never going to use this in real life. The rest of you are lying to me, right? So, so okay. How many of you went through algebra? Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, so you're at the cash register and you're like, hold on, what does X equal? Nobody cares, right? Okay. But in doctrine, it is not that way. In doctrine, it all matters. And it all matters because it's fundamental to our living, okay? It's fundamental to our living. I shared in the devotion this morning that kind of set the stage for this. You can go back and look at that if you want. It's on YouTube. But Uh, I shared this passage from James that says, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Isn't that an awesome truth? God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. That's a doctrinal truth, but that doctrinal truth will help you live, and here's why. Because when you understand that every good thing that comes in your life actually comes from the Father of lights, from God our Father, you then will live knowing uh, that every good thing in your life is Uh, should be directed to God for praise. You should say, this is good, God is worthy of praise because of it. It affects your practical living. And so it affects everything. Doctrine is really, really important. So doctrine is absolutely vital to this. So we're going to jump into this, and we're going to start with a little bit of an icebreaker. Some some of you may not know these faces or the names uh, of these men. I told them to uh, answer these two questions. Number one, what's your name? Number two, what is one biblical truth that has shown practical effects in your life? I told them we don't care about their confirmation name if they were ever raised Catholic. We just want to know their name. So, Barney, wait a minute, that's your name. Okay, so we'll, we'll start with that. Well, we'll I, was ra- I was raised a heathen, so I don't yes. know if that matters. <laughs> that was your confirmation was name, my, Barney the Heathen. I, Barney I love the it. Heathen. Now, my name is Barney, and... Uh, do you want me to share a... Yeah, what is one biblical truth that has shown practical effect in your life? I think that uh, uh, realizing, I never thought God actually loved me. And when I realized that he actually does, that changed me. That changed me. I think it was God's love that, that actually turned me toward him when I realized that it wasn't just a children's story that God loves us. It's, it's real. Awesome. My name's Ethan, and an overall study, especially in the doctrine of Jesus, there's this overarching theme that everything Jesus does, particularly in dying on the cross and providing a sacrifice, not only provides a sacrifice for our sins, but an example of how we need to live. And that sounds, yeah, well, duh, he taught us how to live, but, but everything. Him dying on the cross, the way we need to die to ourselves so we can find life in him, it's a beautiful truth that is very apparent when you study. I'm Sean. Um, I think for me it was the scripture that says, like your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, younger Sean would, would say a lot of things and not mean them and paid the price for those things. So um, it's been a journey to be careful what I say and what I promise to people, especially the little kids. You can't just tell a little kid you're going to do something and ignore it. You're breaking their hearts. So that's one that gets me. My name's Mark. 
um, like Bernie, I had uh, I had learned what love was, 1 Corinthians 13. I had to learn to love myself. But the, the one that I live by daily is one that I've been practicing the last few days because of this. And it was in the book of Matthew when Christ said, worry not for tomorrow, today is its worry. So one day at a time. I'm Jacob. Uh, I think for me it would be the compassion of God. Like even though he made us and then we were awful and succumbed to sin, he still had compassion on us to set this whole plan in motion to give us salvation. I am John. Good to see everybody. The most, one of the most powerful truths, doctrines of uh, in Scripture is the reality of Christ's love for the church, for his bride, and how that reflects, um, or we're commanded to, husbands are commanded to do that just the same to their wives, love them sacrificially, take the initiative, take responsibility, bear authority, um, all those things, and uh, that's what, it's amazing, it's amazing. So. Very good, guys. Okay, so the doctrine of Jesus uh, is a tricky doctrine. Um, it's tricky because there are some really complicated questions that need to be answered. And here's a tendency of Christians, just so you guys know this. Um, how many of you have ever played baseball just in the backyard or whatever? You, most of us, right? Yeah. Um, how good are you uh, at hitting home runs when you toss the ball up to yourself? <laughs> Pretty good, right? Like, it's amazing. I toss that ball up, I can, I can knock that ball out of the fence. It's really great. This is what oftentimes we do as Christians when it comes to answering questions. We give ourselves really easy questions. And we knock them out of the park and we act like we're smart. We're like, look, I answered that, enough said, mic drop, I win. <laughs> and the rest of the world goes, give me the ball. <laughs> right? The skeptic looks at us and says, give me the ball. You have no idea. This is, just sounds like hooey, right? It sounds like Christianese. It sounds like nonsense. So then the secular world gets the ball. The, the skeptical world gets the ball. And they throw a curveball. And you and I are like, what just happened here? And then all of a sudden, we're questioning everything. We're like, am I a Christian? <laughs> right? Do I believe in Jesus? And so it becomes really hard. Uh, the importance of talking about these doctrines uh, and the importance of doing what we're doing today is to ask some questions that are a little bit more challenging than, who is Jesus to you? Because <laughs> nobody cares who Jesus is to you, right? What matters is who is Jesus, amen? So we're going we're gonna to ask some tough questions. And these guys, you're going to find out that these guys are really awesome. They really do understand these truths. And as we go further in our Christian life, we're going to continue to ask harder questions and listen to the skeptical world. We're going to continue to give them the ball and let them throw it as crazy as they want to throw it because what we're supposed to do is get good at hitting, hitting the ball. Amen? Not just this little Christianese answer. We're so safe in our churches. We're so safe. We've got it all figured out. 
I give you the answer. I tell you that I'm wonderfully well-blessed and highly favored, and you guys think that I'm a spiritual giant. And my wife goes, not so much, right? <laughs> right? So it's really important that we start answering the tough questions. So before we jump into that, I want to give this over to Mark for just a second, and he's going to share just a quick overview of truths that we believe about Jesus. So this is what I presented at the end of our, our devotional series with all these guys. So the following is what Pierce Point Community Church believes as the foundation for our Christian faith and what motivates us to proclaim the gospel. We believe in Jesus Christ, our King, Revelation 1.5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. We believe that he was fully human, fully divine. John 1, 4, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We believe that he was a sacrifice for our sins, 1 John 2, 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You'll also find that in Leviticus 4.35 and Leviticus 9.7. We believe that he was a guilt offering, Leviticus 7. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is but one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. We believe that we are justified in Christ, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We believe in sanctification, 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Awesome. Okay, that sounds like a bunch of Christianese, and I love it. But we're going to go deeper. We're going to go deeper in answering some of, those, some of the underlying questions of all of that. These are... These questions that I'm going to present today are by no means an exhaustive list of questions. But again, the purpose of this is so that you guys can begin to know and begin to trust 
those who are answering these questions, right? If you have a question, you can ask these guys questions. You can run to people and you can know that you have a real person you can talk to. Guess what? You can also go to Google, but it's not the same, <laughs> right? Right? There's a difference between going to Google and asking your mom for grandma's recipe and asking your mom for grandma's recipe, right? She's going to tell you all the secrets. So it's really important that you know that you have people you can trust. Okay, question number one, gentlemen. Who is Jesus and what part does he play in the Godhead? Jesus is our mediator. Um, I think it's, uh, you have to pardon me, I'm running on the soundboard, plus trying to find scriptures, so it's You're going to good. take me a few minutes. Um, I think it's 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, for the testimony given at the proper time. He's our mediator. So Jesus is not a created being. He has always been. And uh, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Later we see that John's referring to the Word as Jesus Christ. All things came into being through Jesus all things were created through him. He was, he was not a created being. He became man, but he did never become God. He was always God. But he became fully man at one point. He, very cool. I think one of the things that you hear skeptics say a lot is that if Jesus always was, how was he born? How, what, what was that about? And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that as well, that God incarnate, but we forget that Jesus, as these guys have said, always was. And uh, he, is, he is eternal. He always will be. Yeah. Always was and always will be. We'll answer this more in the next question, too. Yes, the difference between being begotten of the Father and not made from God the Father. Big difference there. He's of the same substance, uh, one with the Father, but he's still God's son. Yeah. And... Because he is God's son, really. Very good. So his role in the Trinity is really, really awesome because he gets to come after God has created everything, set the stage for with all the prophets, that Jesus comes to be the object that can grant us salvation. But not only that, he also tears the veil. He makes it, then the Holy Spirit comes so Jesus sets everything up so that we can have this direct relationship with God through the spirit that comes and dwells inside of us. Very good. Very good. And generally last, I like to summarize. <laughs> and this is what I had studied on. It blesses me immeasurably to know that there is one person, the Godhead, his name is Jesus. And he manifests himself in three ways as the Father in terms of his divinity, as the Son in terms of his humanity, and as the Holy Spirit in terms of his, his ability to dwell within us. So Christ is all of that and more. So, 
Question number two, what does it mean for Jesus to be both God and man? Small question, <laughs> go. I'll take off there. That's a, when we talk about God, God incarnate, and uh, that's a very difficult subject, even for those that believe, to actually understand that God could become man and die, but still be alive. When Jesus came, he was God incarnate. He actually said that if you've you've got scripture that says no one has ever seen God at any time. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, God incarnate. So in Hebrews 2, starting in 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, this is the part to pay attention to, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That is a huge piece of why, which sort of answers the what it means for God to be man. He was made like his brethren in all things, which means he was tempted just as we are tempted. And and why? So that he can be a faithful high priest to God and make propitiation for our sins. So he can actually be the sacrifice that we need. And so he can come to the aid of those who are tempted because he's actually been tempted. I think that makes him a lot more relatable and easier to connect with because how often do these almighty beings and other things not really have human temptation? I mean, they, they they couldn't understand, but God came and lived life how we live it. He faced the same things we did, and he was still perfection. Anybody else? Absolutely, and and it was his humanity, you know, God incarnate, that showed us the way, and and lived that life as an example to us, and, and that is one of the most powerful things that that has been in my life is that he was that humanity, and he lived it, and he showed us the way, even to the point of death, and and that's something that. I still have trouble wrapping my mind around. Yeah, in order for the the gospel to be accomplished, for there to be a sacrifice of sins, remission of sins, both Jesus being infinite, fully God, is really important because without an infinite an infinite being, there can't be an infinite satisfaction or atonement for for sin against a holy God, an infinite holy God. We can't satisfy that. Um, If God were to sacrifice us or another animal over and over again, it's not going to fully satisfy God. Um, So that the the infiniteness of God, of Jesus, is really important in that aspect. And also um, him being a man. Genesis talks about that there's life in the blood. That's why there's um, 
uh, God initially created this, you know, the sacrifices, provided that for uh, temporary atonement, appeasement. And uh, so it was really important for him to be man in that sense. Very good. Question number three. Why is it important for Jesus to be incarnate? We just led to that, but we're going we're gonna to go a little bit further. Why is it important for Jesus to be incarnate? So we kind of answered this a little bit earlier in Hebrews 2 with, um, with Jesus being made like his brethren in all things. That's, that's him being made flesh, so he has to suffer the things that we had to suffer, um, that we have to. So he's tempted the way we, we are tempted, so we can come to the aid for those who are tempted. Hmm. Jesus was God. He was always God. He was always perfect. And yet, we've been through this suffering stage this temptation of life and in this flesh and he was perfect you would think well couldn't he have just come and sacrificed himself i mean that's what he did in the end anyway why spend some time on earth if he's perfect wouldn't that have been a good sacrifice Mm -hmm. save some time why not god's (laughs) efficient (laughs) he wasn't just he didn't just want to say oh i wonder what going down the swing set's like He, he actually there was a purpose for that and it in its most simplest form, is, is twofold. One, he, he wanted to show us, he wanted to correct us, he wanted to give us some sort of revelation of, of what this is all about, what we are really here to do, and how to do it. And then two, we've been through this temptation, this, these trials, and we failed, and we failed miserably. <laughs> we need someone who, is, who has gone through it perfectly, who has actually done the work that we haven't done and then given that work to us freely because there is this work that needs to be done and we can't do it we've tried no one can do it jesus came he said i'll do the work he did the work he did it perfectly and he said not only did i do it perfectly i'm not going to keep it it's yours i'm going to sacrifice it down for you and that's why he came that's why he came incarnate that's why that is so important awesome but also too i think that that uh he shows us how, what, what it means to glorify God, you know, because he does nothing but glorify God in everything that he says and does. Okay. And he does nothing but glorify God by doing that for us. And that, that's an awesome, awesome thing to learn is right. that he did that for us. But then to give it, give us that ability as well to glorify God is like, it just pushes it over the top. It really does. I think uh, Ethan was kind of right on the point there with Hebrews 2. There's a specific scripture that, that I was studying on this. Um, it's Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered... He is able to come to the aid to those who are tempted. We keep hearing that word propitiated or propitiation, and that's that's saying that he had to gain God's favor on our behalf, and that's that perfect work that he he completed in himself with that. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Okay. Question number four. What does it mean for Jesus to lay down his equality with God and humble himself to the point of death? on a cross. 
That's a, there's a term for that, and it's, uh, I want to say it's kenosis or kenotics. And it's a, uh, God, Jesus did not do away or uh, uh, walk away from his divine nature when he went to the cross. Mm-hmm. He temporarily set it aside for a, for a, for a higher meaning. It, without him doing that, you know, uh, we're all doomed. You know, if you didn't, if he hadn't done that, if he wasn't willing to humble himself, even even to the point of dying the death of a human being, a man on this earth, we would be doomed. Mm-hmm. That's God's love for us. But but that's uh, laying down his life. Not he could have taken that back and said, "Nope, I'm not going to do this." Mm-hmm. Thank God he didn't do that. Yeah, it says it's Philippians that talks about the uh, Jesus laying down. He not uh, considering consider it equal, uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, Paul says, "Have this same mind in you," and meaning not uh, pining after having this entitlement mentality. I mean, that uh, Jesus was entitled. He deserved. He was. Uh, he deserved life, not death. He did, he was worthy of everything, um, all of our praise, and he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped, to uh, uh, demand, uh, is what comes to mind. Yeah, to elaborate on that, the, the question is, what does it mean for, for Christ to humble himself in this way? In Philippians 2 uh, through 4, Paul's giving giving them some advice. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Mm-hmm. And it, that seems weird, but just keep reading. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Already he's kind of explaining that. He's emptying himself, he's taking the form of a bondservant, so, and he's being made in the likeness of men, already that's, you know, setting yourself apart a little bit, setting down willingly some sort of equality there with God. Being found in appearance as a man, and then here we get the what. What does it mean? He tells us, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What does it mean? It means he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even (laughs) death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. In Philippians 2.6 in the NASB it says, Who, although he exalted in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And doing a little bit of more research, and that's why looking at different uh, uh, interpretations, NASB, the NIV, NLT, whatever you read, I always like to to read between them all, it kind of clarified in the NIV, who being a very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, to humble himself to the point of death on the cross. Being God, he could have used that to his advantage to live, bypass it, alter it, many things, but that would have changed everything that God had planned. For, for us, not for him, to bring glory to him, but also our salvation. So uh, I found that very important that he didn't use that to it, humble, not to use that to his advantage. Very good. 
that can be also translated like um, like he is willingly laying aside his, his privileges. Mm-hmm. Like he is, he's still, quote unquote, equal with God. You have to nuance it. We're not saying that Jesus Christ was ever not equal with God. And that's not what the Bible is claiming either. But they're trying to translate this word in a way that makes sense. And it's more that he's laying aside some privileges that he had. Okay. Um, life in the spiritual realm being fully God was probably a little bit more fun than coming down here and fasting for 40 days. He's laying aside <laughs> some privileges of being God to, it's part of the sacrifice of what he did. Very good. Anybody else? Okay. Question number five. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? I really liked this question. Because he needed a bath. (laughs) I just have to say one thing. Every time Barney talks, I'm like, his voice is awesome. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's like a radio voice. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Because, like, this was a question that I had never really thought of. Like, when we get baptized, what we are doing is we are publicly saying that we are going to follow Christ and repent of our sinful nature. Now... We all know Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. So why would he need to repent? But it's this beautiful display of his obedience to God to come and be baptized and that he is willing to do what the Father wants him to do. And in Matthew 3, you get this awesome interaction between John and Jesus. Jesus shows up to be baptized, and John's like, I think you're the one supposed to be doing this to me, <laughs> not the other way. But Jesus does it. He says it's too full, full of righteousness. And after he's baptized, we get to see the Spirit of God come down and announce of Jesus being God's son. I mean, I think that's just such an awesome. There is a really cool piece to the. And by the way, I sound like a uh, hillbilly radio announcer. That's true. <laughs> I, and you're wearing I a bowl. I did not <laughs> say otherwise. I just think you sound like a radio announcer. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, Jacob explained this very, very well. It is absolutely, Jesus told John, I, I, this is to be done to fulfill righteousness and the scripture. But there's a really cool piece to this that. We don't know unless we really look into the Hebrew lineage of people. John the Baptist, both his mother and his father, were of the tribe of Levi. Now, the tribe of Levi were the priests. And guess what the priests did? Mm -hmm. They took the sacrifices and laid it before God. That's what John was doing. He, he, his mom and his dad both were of the, the tribe of the priestly tribe of the Levites. Man, they're so rich. If you, if you really, really want to understand things, I, I, I love the fact that we can go in and understand what the Hebrew background is in much of this because it has deeper meaning sometimes. Much of it has so much, so much meaning. But, mom, but John's mom and dad were both of the tribe of Levi. They were the ones submitting and John was the one that's saying, this is the sacrifice, the only sacrifice. Yeah. Told you, it's the voice. It's the voice, I told you. And, and it's those little nuggets like that that you find when you're studying Scripture, uh, the culture, the timing, and, and the lineage, that you find those great little nuggets. Right. Different, but there is a little bit of overlap there and just relevance. Um, 
in the tribe of Levi that 30 years old, they would become a priest or at least have the opportunity to. Hopefully they would. It's kind of like going to college. Hey, I made it. I'm 30. <laughs> <laughs> but they would become a priest Yay. at the age of 30. <laughs> and that is the age that Jesus was at his baptism. It, it inaugurates his his ministry there. That's that's when things really take off. That's when things start. He shows up on the scene. John's been doing this thing. Jesus identifies with what John's been doing. He's baptized. He's becoming a priest. Highly nuanced that because he never changes. He, he always was and he always is. But in that Levite picture, that's what's happening there. And it's really, really cool. Yeah. And you also have the, the spirit descending like a dove upon him and the father's voice calling out. And it's just this huge foreshadowing it's validity right there everyone sees that and they go okay i'm gonna remember that they're gonna go home later and talk to their wife so how was how was your day honey (laughs) um john was out baptizing people this one guy showed up and john didn't want to baptize him and then he finally did and then this loud voice came there was this weird really pretty dove and uh, um I'm going to need a nap. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) thank you, Ethan. (laughs) So, it's it's more to do with, like like we were, everyone's been talking about, this is an announcement. Um, we repent before we're baptized. There's a, there's a process to that. And Jesus says, this is, this is good and, and, and well to do in the sight of the Lord. Let's do this. So this is, this is more of a, an announcement piece. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and, light, and lighting up on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is a huge announcement of, here's the Messiah that I've been promising you. That's, that's a significant importance in this act. Amen. Okay, question number six. What was the purpose of Jesus' miracles? Don't all jump at once. <laughs> so... Sort of like we talked about in his baptism and just that event happening with the, the supernatural stuff. Um, God the Father's voice, the Spirit descending like a dove. The miracles help prove his validity. You know, they give him material for his case when he's walking around talking to people. He's saying who he is and look, proof. And then also, God, Yahweh, was the God of the Israelites. And Jesus comes on the scene to bring all the nations back. He's here to unite everyone. He's bringing the whole world back. He wants the entire world. And his miracles, if you look at where they are, most of them are in Gentile territory. I think the mic cut out. Are we good? There we go. It's my arm. My arm broke. Not the mic. (laughs) Jesus can heal you, buddy. Yeah. Anyway, his miracles are as to say, here I am. I'm here. The world's mine now. I'm coming for you. They're everywhere. 
They happen in Gentile territory, and that is huge. That is huge. That wasn't Yahweh's domain. Yahweh's domain was Israel, right? That was where Yahweh's people were. That's where, you know, we didn't mess with that. If you're a spiritual force, you're not messing with Israel. You're not messing with Yahweh's land, okay? And the fact that Jesus is coming, and he's coming into Gentile territory, performing these miracles, um, sending demons into swine, is saying, it's my turf. I'm coming back. It's Amen. mine now. I'm bringing all the nations back, and it's huge. Kind of going off what you were saying, John 20, 30 and 31 says, mm -hmm. Therefore many signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life in his name. I mean, I think he declares his authority, his miracles, but it also proves what he says he's saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's saying he's the son of God, and here he's doing things that only the son of God can do. Mm -hmm. It very much validates and helps people to accept what he said. Jake, Jake stole my answer. <laughs> no, uh, right. I, I think he, he also kind of, he, he turns the Pharisees on their heads. Like, there was magicians, there were Pharisees, there were people that were abusing their spiritual gifts. And Jesus is saying, there's no limitation on God's power here. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be able to heal when healing's needed. We're, we're going to, you know, there's no, we don't have to wait for this or that. There's, there's no reason to have this religious nonsense attached to it. But also, too, on a, on a human side, you know, I was raised in the atmosphere, don't believe anything you see and half of what you hear and half of what you hear and anything you see. It totally negates that, you know, because when Christ is performing those signs and those miracles, he is proving who he is, and there is, there is no way around it. You had, to, you had to accept it. You really did. Let's fire again into some more questions so we can get through everything. Question number seven, why is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection vital to the gospel? All three. Why are all three vital to the gospel? I guess I'll go first. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so why did Jesus have to die? If Jesus doesn't die, then salvation never comes. He's never resurrected. And, like, why would he need to be buried then? Well, if you think about it from a skeptic's point of view, if you saw someone die in a public setting, and then immediately after they were declared dead, they were, they were alive again, you'd start to question, like, well, were they actually dead to begin with? Is this just another magician? But no, he was dead. He was buried. They put guards around his grave, and for three days... He was dead, and then he came back. Yeah. This this is the gospel, the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. This is the gospel that we're supposed to preach. Um, even with our baptism, we are we are buried with Christ, and we are raised again a new creation. That there's a, a significance to all of this being tied together. Emma, the death was temporary. The burial was temporary. The resurrection is eternal. That's ever going Amen. on and on. Amen. So that's why that's part of the gospel. <laughs> Any other thoughts? The, the uh, 
death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was to fulfill prophecy. All, Isaiah 53, 9, the prophet declared that though the Messiah's grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. When you look at the prophecy, you break it down, you look at the characters involved, you look at the time frame, you find so many little nuggets in there. What was the relationship with Nicodemus, Joseph? What was the significance of the burial cloth not being found rumpled on the floor as one would think, but neatly folded? So that's why uh, study is so important. That it was to fulfill prophecy for our salvation. Question number eight. This is where we get into the into the turn here. How can we communicate the person and the work of Jesus to a skeptical world? All of these questions are great questions. In many ways, most of the church would say, okay, I've heard those questions answered. How do you communicate the work and the person of Jesus to a skeptical world? I'm going to go first on that one because uh, for me, that is fairly easy. Uh, because of my involvement with recovery, I generally don't have to go out into the world. The world comes to me. And it's been absolutely an honor and a privilege to be part of that and uh, proclaiming the gospel to the ones that are broken and, and lost. And uh, I, I love what I do. I really do. So I'm, I'm very blessed in that regard. They come to me. I think a lot of times... Uh, it comes down to like a case by case, your your relationship with the person, but like overall the way we've talked to, I know that Barney and Nate have talked on the podcast about how Paul, when he went to Rome, used things that the Romans already knew to communicate that with the Romans and sort of create an in. And I think we can do that with the world. Uh, I mean, the world has this obsession with love and this feeling of love mm. and we have the greatest display of love that we're talking about, Jesus' death for us. Very good. It's sometimes you, you have, you have, it's like Nathan was saying when we started this, you can't just lob a ball up and hit a home run for yourself. Um, if you just start preaching gospel or, or scripture out of the Bible and they're already skeptical, they're just going to, yeah, okay, that's your book, but, but tell me something that I can, I can believe. So we can start with empirical, historical facts. Jesus was a factual person. His, his life, death, burial, resurrection is, is factually witnessed by multiple accounts. There's, there's all kinds of ways that we can sit down and we can reason and we can talk about things and, and find agreeable ground to start to walk through the, the gospel with, with a skeptical person. Mm-hmm. So just kind of building on that, the, the question is, you know, why... Well, what was the question? How can how we can communicate? We, yeah, how can we communicate Jesus Christ to a skeptical world, not just the world in general, but a skeptical one? And anytime you're trying to communicate something to somebody, especially if they're skeptical, you need to start with something that they value or validate already. So um, someone trying to use the Quran to convince me of Islam isn't going to help a lot with me because I don't validate the Quran. Mm. Um, likewise, if somebody thinks the Bible is a storybook, using the Bible right off the bat to communicate Christ to them probably isn't going to validate a whole lot. I'm probably not going to get very far because immediately they're like, why are you quoting me words from a storybook? 
um, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he doesn't quote one scripture. He presents the gospel, he doesn't quote one scripture like Jacob said, he uses their cultural ideas, things that they knew to communicate the gospel. And that's what we have to do when we communicate with a, um, a skeptical world. Now, does that mean you can't use the Bible at all? But no, that's not what that means, but try to validate it a little bit first. It's historically accurate, it's corroborated, it has a lot of evidence. There's external, external biblical resources that validate its accounts. Um, so you can start with that to validate it, and that's going to validate it in most people's minds in at least some regards that you can use it, and you at least need to appeal to something that they do value. So Jacob's talking about love. Some people might not care at all about the historicity of something, but talk about um, philosophy and love with them, and maybe they'll hear you out. This is one of the few questions, one of the only questions that I I would care to weigh in on. Um, I think the I think the challenge with a skeptical world, and we live in a skeptical world. We live in a uh, I guess an increasingly skeptical world. We we should never divorce the fact that there were skeptics in Jesus's day, and they delivered <coughs> truth to that skeptical world, and people came to faith. Right, so. The Greek didn't believe in the, the validity of the message of the gospel. They thought it was crazy. The Jew stumbled over the person of Jesus. And yet, the arguments were given repeatedly. They constantly worked through the skepticism of that day, and we can work through the skepticism of our day. But here is the thing that I really hope you guys will take away. The Bible, listen to me, please. The Bible is not a magic book. You don't read a passage and somebody's heart melts and they come to faith in Jesus. You know why? You know why we know this? Because we've read every passage possible to every human possible and it doesn't always work. <laughs> they don't all go, Jesus is Lord, right? It's, it's not a magic book. There's not a magic prayer that you're trying to coax people into praying to make them a follower of Jesus. What you're doing is you're reasoning with people because God gave us a brain and he expects us to use it. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser is a person that I quote a lot, but he recently said that shutting off your brain in church is not a virtue, <laughs> right? Shutting off your brain in church is not a virtue. There's not some sort of spiritual, uh, you know, uh, chi that's happening around a church so that you feel good about your faith and you can just go and take that chi into your world. It doesn't work that way. What has to happen is we have to reason with the scriptures and then we have to communicate that reason to the world. And then when somebody says, I don't get it, you say, okay, let's talk further, right? You don't just look at them and go, well, I guess you're going to hell, right? You just don't do that. You just keep pushing and you keep doing this. The apostle Paul reasoned with Jews in the synagogue for years in many cases. Most of us don't have the determination to reason with somebody more than five minutes, right. He's gone years. And then we have him engaging with the people on Mars Hill. And on Mars Hill, those skeptics said, we think you're crazy. And some said, we'd like another hearing on this matter. Another hearing? Does that mean that they accept Jesus? No. It actually means they're like, we got some questions for you. And that's okay. That's okay. We need to keep engaging with people's questions. Uh, the analogy of the baseball piece from before is you've got to start learning the pitches of the world. 
You have to take the time to learn their pitches. You have to study the game film, right? You have to see how it works. And when you do that over time, you will have a gentler approach, a, a more reasoned approach. You'll be able to at least have the conversation about this person and his work. And we'll see where that goes over time. Question number nine, why is the resurrection an important truth within any gospel presentation? The historical evidence proves his divine nature. Um, this was no ordinary man. Um, no one told him to rise. He had guards over his tomb so they couldn't open the door and steal him away. Um, It's a vital part of the gospel. Without the resurrection, we, we don't have a savior. So, yeah. Keep going, guys. So his resurrection is, is him defeating death, and it's his, like Sean said, the final nail in his statement that he was who he said he was, and it also gives us our ultimate hope for, for what is to happen. Yes, we are a new creation in Christ right now. Yes, we get to experience that now, but... He was a forerunner in, in all things for what is to happen to us. You know, we are hoping for resurrection. Our, our hope isn't that, you know, when I die, I get to go to heaven. I get to play around on golden streets with a skateboard forever. That's not the hope. I want, we want to be resurrected like Christ. We will, sure, that's going to happen. But our ultimate hope is in a resurrection where we have an actual body, <laughs> not just some floating spirit. Um, that is our hope, and it happened to him, and it is amazing. Scripture says, if you're, John, go ahead. All right. <laughs> it's a, it's in, the resurrection is incentive for us to believe, and it's a, it's a powerful reality. And it, the disciples prove it because when they heard Jesus had rose from the dead, they remembered the words that Jesus said, and they believed. Really important. But also, too, that resurrection gives us hope in this life so that when I died to myself and I was raised anew, I have life in Christ here and now. I have what prayer says, heaven on earth. If Christ hasn't risen, we're all still in our sins. And if he hadn't risen, this is all pointless. Question number 10. What is the one thing about the person and work of Jesus that continues to amaze you personally? We're going to just go around the horn. Go for it, Barney. Okay. This is easy for me. It's uh, when you read the scripture, second, in 2 Corinthians, it talks about that this is hard to even repeat without, without being overwhelmed by it. It's that, that God, God the Father made Jesus to become sin for us. He was without sin. He had no sin. He didn't sin in word, thought, or deed, or any of that. But God allowed him to become sin for us so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. Man, that overwhelms me. Very similar for me. It's, it's very easy to say that, you know, Christ has foreknowledge. It's very easy for me to say that uh, 
there is nobody that Christ can redeem. If, if Hitler would have repented of his sins and turned to God and put his trust in him and actually repented in turn, that Christ would have been faithful and just to save him. And I believe that full-heartedly. It's true. But when you take that down to an individual level, I think we all struggle with this, some more than others, that, yeah, Christ can save Hitler, but, oh, I've done too much. <laughs> and you at least contemplate that. And it is just so hard to fully grasp that in your own relationship with Christ that he knew every single sin you would ever commit and he still made the decision he said I know how evil this person can be they can be worse than Hitler I, I know that they have that capability and I don't care even if they get that low I am still going to make a promise to them and lay down my life that if they repent if they turn from their sin and actually trust in me and, and trust in me now and turn and repent, yes, but I'm going to walk with you in that, and I'm going to give you community, I'm going to give you scripture, and I'm going to give you me and prayer and my spirit to actually help you in walking in repentance in that, because who's still perfect? Anyone, anyone perfect yet? I'm not. I still need to walk in repentance every day. And that is a very amazing truth that astounds me. I, uh, I was pretty naive and gullible when I was a young, younger kid, all the way up through my 20s. And, uh, you know, you, you get asked for a bucket of steam or, or a board stretcher enough, and you just start to naturally stop trusting people. Uh, for me, I think the scripture where Jesus allows Thomas to come and touch his wounds and, and place his hand on him, it just, it was that one thing in my life that, Everyone has their own, their own story of how they came to Christ, but for me, that was that piece of God really cares, and Jesus really, really wants us to get this. He, he'll take the time to let you touch his scars. He'll take the time to sit down with you and, and share a meal, and that it continues to encourage me because I see it happen with new believers. I see it happen with old believers where Jesus just speaks to us and, and cares for us, and it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, I think for me it would be the humility and servant nature of Jesus. Uh, I think, you know, he came here to serve us, to answer our questions, and to show us the way when we really had no business. I mean, you look at his interaction with the rich young ruler, this guy's coming to ask him questions, and Jesus, it says Jesus looked at him in and loved him. I mean, yeah. I love Jesus, uh, how he, that he ushers in his kingdom, his kingdom, and it flips everything on its head that, of what we know, how people should respond, how people should treat each other, um, he came as a baby, a king as a baby, and is uh, throughout his life and now passing it on to his people in the church, us, ushering in his kingdom more and more, ever growing, ever uh, ruling and reigning. I just love th that Jesus' kingship, his lordship, and his kingdom is not merely a spiritual thing or just praying a prayer let's just get people saved kind of thing. It's, it changes the entirety of our lives, inward and outward. 
And uh, I just love the, the power and the authority of God's kingship and how he rules, rules the world. This is his world. Amen. People think, people yeah. think it's, we think it's our, part of our world. We th- other, uh, the world thinks it's theirs. It's, it's God's world. Amen. He rules. And uh, it's going to, uh, the church is, is uh, on the move. God's on the move through his church. I'm going to have to follow Jacob in the, in the humility of Christ and, and all that he did and all that he taught and, and the way he guided us through that whole process of being saved through his sacrifice. So the humility and what, what it means to me, and, and I have to keep asking myself, am I humble? So that leads us to our next devotional series. So why don't you share that with us, Mark? That was a segue. So guys, our devotional series he pointed is... out the segue yeah, yeah. so yes. that you know it's a segue. Which made it a double segue. A double segue. <laughs> I think that was him externally processing. I'm not even good on a segue. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead. Okay, and Nathan, Nathan's going to kind of help me out with this because yes. I have one way of stating it, uh, but he clarifies it much better. Uh, humility. Um, the significance of humility in the life, teachings, and death of Christ. But also that significance in our lives, individually. So, So Nate, I I was just going to say, Jacob is relieved of his first stop. Yeah, he's going to go first to show you what I'm he wants. I'm going to go first so. to show you guys what I'm looking for. So we're going to talk about the doctrine of humility. Those are at 9.30 every morning on Sundays. And the, each one of these guys is also going to bring into the equation a bit of what that doctrine has changed and shaped in them, right? Because humility, talking about humility does no good. Living humility is what matters, amen, right? Amen. We, can all, we can all talk our Christian faith. We just need to live it. That's the, that's the real challenge. So, Okay, guys, I want you to give them a big hand. We're going we're gonna to call the worship team up, and I'm going to have um, Sean and Mark and Ethan and Jacob provide communion this morning. Barney is relieved of all duties. No, he's not. No, he's not. And I, um, don't worry, I'm not going to sing. We'll, we'll walk through communion and worship as we close today. Um, I told you at the outset that there's no way that those 10 questions are exhaustive questions, but one of our main aims, one of our main, uh, goals is to answer the questions of our world. And, uh, I engage with a lot of people in our world that are, and they're, you can see this on social media and all over the place. There are many people in our world that are extremely skeptical. And the world is growing more skeptical by the day. Okay? It's more and more skeptical by the day. What we, what we need to do, church, is we need to learn, again, we need to learn how they pitch. We need to learn how they throw that ball. Because we still have a responsibility to hit it. Right, And we need to be able to hit home runs because there are home runs in the scripture. There is a truth that people need to come to know. So I hope you'll engage uh, in a different level with your scriptures, with the people who teach you, with the life of this church, because um, it may not be a friend 
that you're talking to. It may not be somebody on the internet. It may turn out to be your child that you have to reason with someday uh, for their faith. And trust me when I say uh, that will become far more important to you. All of a sudden, you'll wish you had learned. You'll wish you had trained better in this. We're living in a strange world, okay? Uh, And so we need to be ready to answer those tough questions.